You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. For a generation now, we've heard the numbers and we've heard the lingo. More than half depart the church after high school and only a remnant remain after college. They're the spiritual but not religious, the prodigal generation, the nuns. Many have speculated about why they've left and how they choose to leave. But some books are more interested in how to invite them back and why we haven't spent more time preparing Christians to endure. One of those books is a Christian survival guide, the latest from Ed Sazeski. And today, Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to welcome him back on the show. Thanks for coming back on, Ed. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me back. Well, Ed, at the heart of your book and, and spelled out in the introduction is a notion that Christian survival means not leaving the faith altogether. That's the phrase that you use. I imagine that such a phenomenon is a complex one, and I want to give you a chance to unfold that a little bit. Are we talking about folks who just don't show up at Athens Christian Church on Sunday mornings anymore, or do you have something else in mind with that phrase? Yeah, uh, yeah, glad you asked about that. I, mean, I think that kind of gets to the heart of who the book is for. Um, there, there is a sense that maybe the, the word perseverance, I know I use that also on, um, on the same page where I talk about, you know, leaving the faith. Um, that is, it's about long-term survival, perseverance. And, uh, you know, the people I had in mind were these people who had these nagging questions and serious doubts, and they're like afraid to answer them or to seek answers to them because, you know, good, good Christians don't ask these questions. Or mm-hmm. if I ask this question, uh, you know, I'm afraid of what I'm going to find. And so it's a book for people who uh, maybe are either on the brink of leaving the faith or they just have had these things that have kind of been kind of gnawing at them and maybe keeping them from, you know, maybe kind of God's abundant life because they're afraid that God's actually a monster if they ask this question or they'll, you know, if they, if they start to ask these questions about prayer, they won't be able to pray anymore. Um, and it's definitely not a book for people who maybe have wrestled with serious doubts and maybe arrived at a place where they feel like they've resolved some of these tensions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I, I always have to keep in mind that that really is the world where some people live. I, I had the good fortune of, you know, converting to the faith and then, you know, growing at a Christian college where hard questions and, you know, engaging with atheist philosophers and all that kind of stuff was just part of the scene. And I try to replicate that in my own teaching, you know, both at church and in, you know, the college setting. But more and more stories that I've heard are of people who, just like you said, I mean, they're told, don't ask that question because it's a dangerous question. And, you know, my, my response to dangerous questions is always, well, great, then ask it, please. Uh, so, I mean, what, talk a little bit, I mean, as far as you can tell, either historically or culturally or whatever else, I mean, what gave rise to this culture where questions are forbidden? Right. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly if I could, you know, speak definitively to that, but, you know, one of the things that I felt like, you know, a lot of the people that I know who have questions and doubts need is like more of like a, like a, like, let's start a conversation approach, you know? So it's like, let's like ask that question, but ask that question with the expectation that I'm not necessarily going to give you this pat canned, you know, answer that, I'm going to kind of sit and present some ideas and options, and we're going to wrestle with them together. And so this is a book that's like, uh, to kind of steal a phrase from Rachel Held Evans, it's a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. Mm-hmm. And so culturally, I think that, you know, a lot of young people are looking to to have these conversations and not necessarily to be 
uh, I have a, a, a predetermined message kind of crammed down their throats. And so, you know, I hate to use the word postmodern, but, you know, there is that, that sense of, you know, Christian apologetics that uh, has kind of created that culture where people are kind of force-fed answers. And so, you know, the, the reaction then has been kind of more postmodern deconstruction and kind of picking things apart. But uh, I think that we have to move the, you know, the, the Christian response to that, to that maybe overcompensation is to say, yeah, like, let's, let's have a discussion and let's talk about what some of the answers could be and, and move, move towards some kind of, you know, I, I kind of talk in the book about the, the messy Christian. And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the messy Christian is kind of the, how dare you suggest that, uh, you know, like I'm messy and I'm embracing my messiness and like, let's not, you know, don't, don't challenge me to move on beyond that. And it's like, well, like there, there are steps we can take out of that, out of that messiness. There are some answers and resolutions we can find, but the process will be messy, but it doesn't necessarily mean we need to stay messy forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to, to one of your early chapters uh, and namely the one about this phenomenon in Christian publishing that, that, is the sort of biblical adjective industry. Uh, say for our listeners a little bit, what sorts of problems you note as you deal with these products, whether it be biblical parenthood or biblical diet or biblical, whatever else, and what sort of alternative would you hold out? And the sense I get is that you think that, you know, a different kind of approach is ultimately going to be more faithful to the actual Bible that we've got. Talk a little bit about, what's out there, talk about what you would hold up as an alternative. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I do kind of poke a little bit of fun at the Christian industry. I've got a um, Gideon's Biblical Leadership Quiz, uh, you know, that you know, leaders only make decisions after uh, drinking wine, taking a nap, laying a fleece out twice, or forming a committee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, it kind of like hits at the, you know, the tendency to take these, these narratives and stories and to make like an absolute blueprint to follow and so then we get the biblical manhood biblical marriage biblical money biblical conflict you know and i'd, I'd love to mm-hmm. see the solomon's guide to biblical conflict that would be a great one yeah. um <laughs> the way he handled it so uh you know I, so i think that we have to to move beyond like more of a blueprint approach and more of like a painting that these are narratives that they're they're showing faithfully depicting how god interacts with, with people at a particular time and place and how they interact with god and and that um, there are gods doing new paintings today. And so as we use these stories, you know, we're kind of always remixing them. And N.T. Wright has a really helpful uh, kind of analogy with that. The Bible's a four-act play, and we're living in the fifth act. And we have to uh, live in the fifth act based on those previous four acts and, and what they, they show us. And so, um, you know, moving away from making a kind of like absolute truths out of narratives and poems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes some sense. Now, I'm curious, in that same chapter, you give what you yourself call, so this is not my phrase, an overly simplified guide to how conservatives and liberals read the Bible. And this this made me curious because I see the differences between conservatives and liberals less in terms of how liberal you are and more in terms of when you're liberal. After all, I mean, it tends to be those who are more right-leaning who get squeamish and start to allegorize uh, when Jesus calls his disciples not to resist evil. Uh, but then on the other hand, you know, uh, when, you know, people talk about, you know, the 
sexual mores of the New Testament, then people of a different persuasion start to allegorize. I mean, it's one of those things where it seems like uh, everyone has their favorite bits of the Bible to interpret away. What sort of phenomena do you have in mind when you talk about people taking the Bible literally or spiritually? Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up that it is definitely oversimplified, uh, you know, to the point where I wrestled with including that in the chapter. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I'm definitely writing for like lay readers who, if I like, if I added one more sentence to that section, they would fall asleep. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's the the challenge always. And that was a big lesson in coffee house theology that uh, my first book that, you know, I tried to really simplify some theological concepts and, uh, you know, the average person in the pew still kind of struggled with it, I think. So, mm-hmm. uh, what I had in mind in particular was just that, uh, you know, what, what is the Bible trying to do? Like what's the kind of the main, uh, kind of approach that we have for the Bible. And so, you know, the kind of the oversimplified conservative who's saying that, you know, the Bible is these, these historic stories that are being passed down to us and they're all reliable and inspired. And some even say inherent. Mm -hmm. And then the liberals were saying that the reason we have the Bible is that it's just this like spiritual way to connect with God. And that, you know, Israel's just, kind of making this stuff up as they go and you know it's all just uh yeah and so you know the kind of the starting point um and then so i think that like once you have that starting point of are you assuming the bible has been this historically true and passed down or are you assuming that the bible was just kind of you know it's all about the spiritual truths uh that kind of determines i mean how you answer a lot of the questions you know so Mm -hmm. uh you know, when you deal with gender roles, if you believe that it's just all about the Bible, is not necessarily historical, and then it's just kind of uh, about the spiritual message, you can say, well, you know, Paul probably didn't even write Ephesians, so why, why should we even care? Uh, you know, so, like, you kind of can, like, make, you can, like, some, your answers are kind of determined that way based on your kind of assumption for what the Bible is and what it's meant to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm just trying to get to the, you know, some of the the, the assumptions we bring to the Bible as we approach it. Mm-hmm. Now, I, and I'm, I'm curious, I mean, just in your own experience or, you know, sort of as you uh, counsel people and talk with people, uh, when there are, you know, matters of interpretive dis- uh, difference or distance too, why not? Uh, but when there's matters <laughs> of interpretive difference, uh, what sorts of conversations would you encourage people to have uh, that are different from the way that people generally proceed in 2014? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, like one of the things in the book that I just try to, you know, steer people toward is just to uh, the the largeness of the Christian tradition and the many perspectives. And I think that in that, in a sense, like our our uh, diversity is uh, an asset. Um, so if if you've had experiences where you just feel like you can't, um, you know can't worship or can't read the Bible because of a particular past teaching or a way it's been abused. Um, there are other traditions you can engage with. And so I, I think just like encourage people just to find a way to engage God that, um, you, know, it, it, you know, if there's, if there has been past abuse, you know, there's lots of other ways that you can approach God. And I don't know if I'm answering your questions. So I probably should stop there. Maybe I'm <laughs> off on a rabbit trail. So <laughs> no, 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 that's all right. And, and I, I guess one of the reasons I ask is that, you know, I have always felt somewhat at sea when I've had to actually have a hermeneutical contest in a church setting, you mm. know, where whether it's been a, you know, an elders meeting where we have to decide, okay, 
how is this passage going to guide us or, you know, something right. along those lines. Right, uh, right. I, I always feel like I'm making it up as I go along. <laughs> right, that's, right. That, that's terribly uneasy. And I mean, your answer might just be live with it, wiener. But, uh, you know, the, <laughs> is there anything beyond just live with it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, so using my like, like, you know, blueprint versus painting analogy, uh, you know, I think that there is something about like, when you look at the Bible as a painting, that there should be a resemblance, you know, to previous paintings. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, does this, does this look like, you know, the God of the Bible? Does this look like the people of the Bible? Does this have the, you know, the fruits of the spirit? And mm-hmm. so, you know, kind of getting away from like, maybe necess- like, not necessarily always going to the chapter and verse proof text, unless it's like a, like, you know, kind of a black and white thing of like, yes and no thing of like, uh, did the resurrection happen? But, you know, it's like, what, what kind of eldership should we have? What kind of, uh, you know, what does, you know, uh, godly leadership look like? You know, I think there's a range, you know, of, of options and there's cultural things we have to take into account. And, uh, so it's more about like, this is, this is like resemble the kind of, uh, thing that Jesus was trying to start or does this resemble, you know, a, uh, a fortune 500 CEOs, uh, approach to organizational development. Okay. All right. That makes some sense. Well, one of the questions that, uh, it's interesting whenever I, uh, tell people that I teach philosophy at a college, uh, inevitably someone has a, a story of a friend of theirs who grew up Christian and then they encountered the problem of evil in a philosophy class. And that's what made them leave the faith. So I, I found it fascinating that you had a chapter dedicated to it. I think it's one of your stronger chapters. And I want you to talk a little bit uh, to our listeners about it. What's the difference between cold cognition and hot cognition, which are two, two terms you use in there? And what does that distinction have to teach us about moments when our neighbors grieve? Yeah, the problem of evil, um, you know, one of those things, you know, for me is that, you know, we have these theodicy discussions and we get into the hows and whys and, you know, why is this happening? And it's, it's tricky, you know? And so, um, you know, one of the things that we get into is we start asking these questions and offering up solutions when people are going in the midst of, of grief and through a hard time. And so like, people start saying, well, is this God's will or whatever. And so a psychologist friend of mine shared that there's like kind of two different ways of, of, you know, approaching grief. And one of them is cold cognition when we're kind of just, you know, figuring out the details and, and wrestling. And so that's where like maybe theodicy would be would come into play. And we're trying to figure out what's God's role in a world that has pain and suffering and evil. And then the, uh, the hot cognition is more about the idea of being present with someone in the midst of grief in a hard time. And so, uh, it's not about offering explanations or answers. Uh, the, the whole point is all about, uh, you know, being present and wrestling with them in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I, and this is one of those places where I, I still struggle with this question, you know, even though I, you know, I, I don't consider it a, uh, a crisis of faith sort of question anymore. Uh, but it's interesting that, you know, I mean, certain brands of Christian theology, and I'm thinking especially sort of the process thought, you know, that you, that, I mean, that's enjoying a resurgence right now uh, among especially liberal Protestants. Uh, seems to say that, you know, when we do our hot cognition, then it ought to match up pretty closely with our cold cognition. And, you know, if they don't, then we need to change our cold cognition. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess one of the questions I would have about that construct, and I think it's an interesting one, is 
doesn't sort of give us too easy a pass for the way that we theorize evil and suffering and such. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, and I think that, uh, the Bible kind of gives us both, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of gives us, you know, hot and cold cognition and it gives us, uh, Psalms, um, you know, so I, I, I would just, I would start there that I think the Bible gives us explanations and it also gives us a lot of empathy. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the other chapters that I thought was especially interesting is your chapter on the doctrine of hell. And I mean, I, I thought that your approach initially uh, was, again, a very good one. Uh, I agree with you that, you know, the doctrine of hell is not an all or nothing matter, uh, which is one of the things you say. Take a little bit of time. Tell our listeners about why you would say that a doctrine where so much is on the line can be anything but an all or nothing thing. I mean, how is it that the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of the afterlife more generally could be a matter of discussion? Uh, yeah. So one of the things about hell that I find fascinating, and I, you know, this is one of those questions that I was um, ignoring for a long time. It was that, um, yeah, there's no word for hell that's like, like a consistent word. You always translate hell. Uh, and there's no like concept that's consistently uh, the same for hell. So there's Sheol, there's Hades, uh, there's Gehenna. And, you know, even, you know, to associate something like uh, Gehenna with, uh, you know, a, a place in the afterlife is probably incorrect. It's probably, you know, a, uh, a literal place Jesus had in mind. He was using, you know, in a metaphorical sense, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it corresponds to our modern notion of hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and so we have, you know, you know, people who have kind of built their theology around this idea that, you know, doesn't even, the, the word hell, any, any word for hell doesn't really even show up in the book of Acts. And so, you know, you think about all the times we hear about hell in sermons and, uh, you know, it doesn't even, <laughs> it doesn't even come up in the, the great missionary book of the church. Uh, you know, Jesus, you know, his book is primarily on the kingdom of God, I would say. Uh, and, and, you know, when he mentions, you know, Gehenna or Hades, it's, you know, more in the, the context of rebuking the religious leaders. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's kind of turned this into people who have really focused on eternal punishment and, and uh, going to heaven when you die. And, and yet it's not a very well-developed idea. And one of the things I say in the book is just that if Jesus really wanted it to be at the heart of his message as far as kind of like, you know, the, the thing that we always mention when we share the gospel, he didn't do a great job of making it really clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think the rest of the New Testament writers as well. And so there's, you know, you can make a case for hell as eternal conscious torment if you, if you want, you know, I think you can get there, you can do it, but I don't think it's necessarily an open and shut case. I don't think it's necessarily uh, as easily constructed as people have been led to believe. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, too, because this is a doctrine that, I mean, is so thoroughly baked into the evangelicalism that I encountered as a younger person uh, that even now, I mean, I always feel like I'm cheating a little bit when I look at those things, even though, you know, like yourself, I've looked at the literature, I've looked at, you know, the various vocabularies, and, you know, I've looked at the the whole idea that, you know, the threat of burning in Gehenna is, you know, on some level a threat that you won't be buried peacefully when you die. Right. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, 
it's fascinating to me that, I mean, just even psychologically, and I mean, you can tell me if I've just got hangups or what, you can be my shrink today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even when I talk about these things, and I know full well that I'm on good scholarly ground, uh, it still feels like I'm cheating. I mean, is that is that something you still experience or am I just nuts? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like it, oh, yeah, it I does. I, no. <laughs> no, yeah, like I, I agree. I agree that um, it does feel like we're, uh, you know, we're going soft on God, you know, that, that we're going uh, for the easy way out. You know, it does feel like that. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, it's important to remember that the church wasn't, you know, even united in its opinion on this topic uh, among the church fathers. And when you think about, like, just why, like, hell stuck around traditionally, like, you know, the church was burning people at the stake for saying, like, don't collect indulgences. So, you know, if this, like, you know, powerful organization, uh, you know, is wielding its power over people and, and heretics and it has the power to cast people into hell, if you're a heretic, I mean, like, why would you give that up? Like, why would you <laughs> why would you question that? Um, it's not to get all conspiracy theorists on you, but it just seems like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, at least, to say that, you know, the early church was not agreed. Uh, on this topic and uh you know and so i feel like i feel i feel comfort in that that i'm not alone in that it's like oh right like these people you know had a really diverse opinion and and even across denominations like if you look at eastern orthodox they don't have any kind of concept of hell anything close to what we uh believe uh you know they don't they don't see hell as like a place or a location uh so anyway so that's you know it's far from unanimous uh, opinion on the topic, even though it feels like it, you know, it has been the, the consensus for all of time. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. And I mean, you know, it's yeah. funny because I, that, that's one of those things as well when I teach, you know, I mean, I, I can, you know, get students to, you know, concede that, you know, Jesus had all sorts of biological functions going on as a full human being and, you know, all sorts of things that probably should give them the heebie jeebies. But if I touch, you know, an eternal conscious hell, they all of a sudden get squeamish on me. So it's, it, it's mm. definitely a chapter that was well, well, well welcomed. I'll put it that way that, you know, you put that out there. So, well, I want to start with a bit of curiosity on my part and move to more substance. Uh, I have reviewed a couple of Bart Ehrman's books uh, on the website. Uh, you know, I don't find them all that impressive among biblical scholars. I, I have to admit, I mean, I think that there are others who make, you know, more compelling cases against the reliability of the Bible. So out of all the biblical scholars you could have picked from, your stand-in for the sort of unbelieving New Testament scholar is Barterman. Why him? And then once you've answered that, uh, what do you see the Bible itself promising for those who read it? Because one of the things you put a lot of emphasis on is it doesn't promise a lot of the things that the self-proclaimed Bible defenders want it to promise. So answer all those questions in whatever order you want. Let's start with why, why Bart Ehrman? Why Bart Ehrman? Yeah, I, I think it's my NPR bias, maybe. Ah, um, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, just remembering that this is a, a popular level book, it's kind of reaching out to the average person in the pew. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think of, like, who is the person who, you know, the people reading this book have most likely heard speaking out against the reliability of the Bible. Um, you know, so I, I don't know if I chose the best representative, but, I mean, I felt like... Well, let's Aaron... pick Reza Aslan. Then I really would have been like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I felt like I, I wanted to do with the book is to uh, 
you know, trace like some narratives too. So like, you know, I try to start each chapter with an, a narrative of some sort uh, or include narratives of, of people. And I feel like his, his narrative is really compelling as someone who, you know, went to Wheaton, he believed in inerrancy. Uh, he starts to study the text more seriously. And I, you know, I, I could be wrong, but the impression I get is that uh, inerrancy basically uh, led him uh you know, to a place where he, it was kind of an all or nothing proposition. So that narrative is really compelling for me because that's what I've seen a lot of other people do as well. So uh, it wasn't just his, his scholarship necessarily. And I'm not an expert on his scholarship or his, you know, his, uh, you know, his fellow uh, scholars. I'm not like an expert on who the best person would be. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. who you would recommend, but uh, yeah, I, I was basically going for like name recognition, the narrative, uh, and and just the fact that he is kind of a popular level scholar that I think he has been in front of a lot of people. So, you know, when you hear him in NPR talking about the Bible not being reliable, uh, you know, I, I felt like that that was a good person to to mention in the book. But yeah, who who would you recommend? Oh, I got you, I got you. Well, I mean, I, honestly, I mean, the one that shook me up the worst when I was. Uh... And I don't remember if I read him when I was a, a college senior or first year seminary student, but uh, uh, actually Rudolph, Bo- uh, is it Rudolph? Yeah, Boltmann. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, when he, yeah. he he lays it out in such stark terms, you know, I mean, you know, this is the world of the New Testament. And if you pretend you live here, you're lying to yourself. Uh, I mean, right. that's, that's what made me lose sleep at night. I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I mean, eventually, you know, I, I, I reconciled with it and, you know, I, I've, I've been thinking about it ever since, but. Uh, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where, you know, I, I just thought it was funny because I, I recently, like I said, wrote a review on the website of Ehrman's latest book, um, uh, how Jesus became God. And, you know, I, I kind of viewed it as, you know, sort of very religion 101 basic stuff. And, you know, I said, yeah, I dealt with this when I was 19, you know, if you, re- <laughs> you know, if you really want to rip your guts out, you know, go get some existential, you know, biblical scholarship and, That'll mess you up. But yeah, I, I understand your point, though. So let me ask you this. I mean, you say mm. that the Bible itself doesn't promise to be inerrant the way that a lot of 21st century people want it to be inerrant. What right, does right. the Bible promise in terms of its own gift? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually just at a conference recently where someone was arguing that Jesus believed in inerrancy and that oh. <laughs> just about made my eyes cross. But, you know, I, I, like the thing that, that Jesus promises is uh, abundant life uh, that, uh, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, the, the Bible is all about Jesus is Lord. And, and so uh, the, the question for the, you know, for the Bible being reliable or not, I think in a lot of ways, boils down to, does it do what it says it's going to do? Uh, does it mm-hmm. function the way it says it's going to function? And, uh, you know, Paul, you know, talked about how, you know, it, it's not about words, it's about power. Uh, and I think that, you know, uh, so, you know, does, you know, does the Holy Spirit come to people and does, does God change lives and, and uh, does the resurrection uh, actually, you know, play out in our day-to-day lives where, uh, you know, God you know, brings renewal and life and peace when there's uh, death and, and fear. And, and so, uh, you know, so that's, that's the question is, is Jesus actually Lord here and now, right now? And so, uh, you know, we, I think that there are reasons to point to the reliability of the Bible. And I, I, you know, 
I'm not, I'm not going to like do like a, like a verse by verse, like, you know, analysis of, you know, uh, the historicity of the Bible to prove it's inerrant because I think that it's just not a helpful discussion because the Bible doesn't point us in that direction. The Bible points mm-hmm. us to Jesus being Lord and, and lives being changed and, and, uh, the kingdom of God coming. And so, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the, that's kind of the, the battle for me is, you know, can we, can we live that out? And if we can, if we can't live that out, then, then we have a problem because then that's, that's what the Bible's promising. Sure. Sure. And I, and I'll admit, I mean, this is one of those things where it's, it's just always been the basic epistemology question that always gets me because, you know, if you ask me, is this table 40 inches wide? Well, I'm going to get a measuring tape out and I can tell by the measuring tape that it is, or it is not. The question that always plagued me is, you know, if you assert that the Bible is inerrant, what measuring tape do you pull out to check that? Right, right. <laughs> it's like, is, yeah. there, is there some super Bible that you can, you know, check to make sure that this Bible is okay? And if so, you know, of course, what measures the super Bible? And, you know, it's the infinite regress problem. So I, I, I like the fact that, I mean, you laid it out the way that you did. I, I think it probably will send people into fewer tizzies than my way. So I... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, once again, you proved to be a better diplomat than I am. So I, I appreciate that folks like you are writing books and not me. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, we need we need to know that, you know, there are issues. I, like I wrote a blog post uh, a while back that says why I hate the word inerrancy yeah. and just how it is just, you know, cause all these problems. And, and so, like, you know, I think it's good to know that inerrancy itself has problems and whatnot. But you know, I think it's, it's even, you know, I think that the average person in the feuds needs to know, like, you know what, like, this isn't even worth debating. Like, you know, we can, yeah, we can sure, debate sure. it and we can dismantle it, uh, all day. Uh, but at the, at the heart of it, it's like, what is it, what is it promising you? And is, is that thing that it's promising you actually going to help you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, like, like, you know, if you can, if you can like have your authoritative, fully true, trustworthy Bible, like, How's that going to change your life? Like, what's that going to do for you? Uh, no, not to say that the truth of it doesn't matter, but just that if you go into a stringent verse by verse, I mean, like I, I spent, you know, a three hour class period talking about the chronology of the Hebrew Kings compared to uh, the Egyptian records, uh, because that was, that's what inerrancy demands. And it's like, mm-hmm. that didn't, that didn't, you know, move me toward life change. That didn't draw me near to God. That didn't do anything of what the Bible says it's supposed to be doing. Right, and moreover, and like you said, and I mean, I, I think you've you've converted me to the position where Ehrman was the guy to go to here. You know, if you do put all of your chips on that square, I mean, all it has to do is shift just a little bit and right. lose everything. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is one of those strange wagers of, you know, modern Christianity that, you know, uh, will risk everything on nothing developing as far as you know historical research or any of that i mean that that just seems like a a bad wager to me so right uh, right and now now i've apparently added myself as a gambler so um, (laughs) (laughs) once again i i this turns into a session of confessing sins to ed (laughs) sezeski hey brendan manning man all's grace (laughs) there you go there you go well anyway sticking with the bible for a minute uh another thing i liked about the bible section is you laid out two extremes into which people fall with regards to the Bible. On the one hand, there are folks who simply regard the Bible as outdated, and our main job as readers of the Bible is to find those places where we have become morally superior to it, 
And then on the other extreme, there's people who regard anything post-biblical, anything that, you know, interprets the Bible or frames up the biblical narrative as simply a corruption of what was once pure. Um, I don't like either of those alternatives. I can tell you don't either. What kinds of alternatives do we have when we read the Bible? Yeah, um, you know, it's just it's just a tricky. I mean, I feel like this book. I was trying to get into why we read the Bible, how we read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the chapter that we're talking about here is titled, uh, you know, less lobster, more bonnets. I think that kind of gets into <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. you know, kind of the tension of uh, you know. I think that you know, like kind of my more like progressive or liberal friends will kind of mock conservatives saying, well, we don't eat lobster or, you know, we, 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 we don't, you know, we don't have the thing about eating lobster anymore. Like, ha ha, you know? And, um, you know, but we also, uh, yeah, it, we just kind of get into these extremes of approaching the Bible. And so, uh, you know, what I offer up is a, a spirit guided community centered Bible reading. It's kind of basically the, the, you know, the cheat sheet on coffee house theology, basically here, uh-huh, to be honest, uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that, uh, Which, you by know, the way, I'm still teaching. So that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, so like, you know, there, there is no culturally pure Bible. Like we are going to read the Bible in a, in a culture. We're going to have bias. Um, you know, I, one of the things I do in the book is I also try to, uh, throw in some humorous anecdotes to kind of illustrate you know, some of the points. So like one of the things that I have in there is, uh, a, a fake press release for a book that's the Pyrus-driven church. And so Paul is uh, providing, you know, it's an advanced series of teachings on how to pray in tongues, how to visit heaven in a vision, mm-hmm. how to hand sinners over to Satan. It's like, you know, all this kind of blueprint, you know, here we're just going to drop, you know, all this stuff from Paul's ministry and, 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 you know, word for word kind of apply it to our lives today. And, of course, nobody does that, but people think they do. Yeah. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's that idea of, you know, we need to read the Bible in, in community around other people. And we need to, uh, you know, one of the most helpful things that I do is, you know, whether it's with my wife or with a friend from church is just kind of say, Hey, like, here's this thing that I've been thinking about lately, just about the Bible. And, you know, kind of just take some of my theology for a test ride, uh, against someone else's experience. And, uh, you know, the other thing is just to go on Twitter and just follow a bunch of people from different perspectives and mm-hmm. uh, just kind of just see, like, you know, what's what's going on? And are, are there commonalities? Is maybe the spirit kind of uh, leading a movement? You know, like, you know, we could say that maybe the abolitionist movement uh, was a move of the spirit because it's just a bunch of people kind of getting on the same page uh, about a you know, big topic. So, uh, you yeah, know, so it's it's that you know, reading the Bible in community with each other, uh, recognizing that the spirit is, is moving and that, you know, the spirit is present in the people around us. And, um, you know, I, I mean, obviously it's like, this is the, the Protestant dilemma, right? Like what's our magisterium? Where do we turn for right. guidance and authority? And so it, it, it is, you know, upon us, it's, it's, it's our responsibility to submit to each other, uh, as we study scripture together. And I think the Protestant, you know, the, the thing about Protestants is we get to kind of choose <laughs> who, who we're going to. So we have to be careful about that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's humbly recognizing that the spirit's moving among us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm reminded of a, a passage in, uh, Walter Brueggemann where he says, uh, if you talk to someone and they're pretty sure you ought to order your sex life around what the Bible says, you're probably talking to a conservative. If you talk to someone <laughs> and they're pretty sure we ought to order national, economic policy around what the Bible says, you're probably talking to a liberal. Right. <laughs> so I, that, that, that's always kind of been my guideline for that conversation. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> well, one tension that I experienced, and I'll admit that, I mean, this is coming from someone who is not Pentecostal, teaching at a Pentecostal school. I'll go ahead and frame it that way. Oh, wow. Great man. <laughs> um, is between your critique on one hand of, of will of God language as a sort of stall tactic, but then on the other hand, you insist that sometimes a prayer for very specific life guidance is the most appropriate prayer to speak. Help our listeners to navigate that tension. How can one know oneself, hold on to the good, wait for God moments, and stay away from the bad sorts? Right, right. Yeah, no, this is, you know, I'm trying to walk a fine line in this book. Um, I am I am definitely not a Calvinist, and I try to make that really clear <laughs> in the book that, you know, I'm writing from a more like Wesleyan. I only turn out, I, I only turn out to be a Calvinist when I'm around Pentecostals, so I... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm kind of like I'm kind of like charismatic light like I'm a vineyard guy so okay. uh, you know so I I think that you know that's that's been a group that I've found really helpful as far as you know they they have a scholarly conversant you know vein and they're not necessarily you know you find Calvinists and Muslims among them it's kind of crazy so mm-hmm. what I what I'd say this is this that um, yeah like we kind of you know if anything I have used the like God's will language to basically like. Uh, opt out of praying. It's just like, well, whatever happens, happens. It's God's will. And it becomes like almost like a Christian fatalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other opposite is more like, well, God's going to speak to me directly and I'm not going to do anything, you know, until God speaks. And there's, you know, you hear crazy anecdotes. But I have one friend who, you know, should I go to Burger King for lunch today? And he's like praying in his car, you know, oh, waiting for God to direct. Yeah. You know, so we can take that to an, a really unhealthy extreme. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, you know, the thing with, about the Bible is that it kind of like, it shows God kind of laying out paths for people. There's like the path to life, the path to destruction, you know, maybe like Solomon, mm-hmm. uh, I like to point to as an example of, you know, God, uh, directing him and him praying for something specific and God saying like, well, here's, here's kind of the course of your life. Uh, you can, you know, choose to obey me or disobey me. Um, you know, so, in that, I think that, you know, it's like there's, there's, there are things we can just know we should do just to be obedient and we don't have to run everything up the flagpole with God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I like to do Henri Nouwen's approach to prayer where it's um, uh, with, with open, open hands. Uh, and his, his thing is that we enter into prayer with, with our hands down and then we, you know, as we lay our, our issues and problems and desires before God and then we move the hands up. And it's, it's receiving from God and, and seeking God. And so, um, you know, that, that helps move us away from the, uh, like, really specific, like, you know, tell me what to do in this particular situation to waiting with open hands and asking God to direct us. So um, I have done that and, and had nothing happen. And I've had other things where it's like, you know what, you need to, uh, you need to pray for this person. You need to talk to that person. Um, and I've had really, like, just really crazy experiences where, you know, sense is just to pray for particular people. And, uh, it just happened to be a time that they, I didn't know, it, but they were going through a really difficult situation. And so, um, that's something where it's like, we are open to God directing us and guiding us, but we're not necessarily saying like, what should I have for lunch today? God. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, and I'll admit, I guess, because I spend so much time around undergrads, I, I mm-hmm. encounter this so much, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to go on the semester abroad. I need to see what God's will is. And I'm like, I'm what? It's like, right. you can get the money, go. You know what? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I, 
I, I, I think probably my uh, my response to it was more a reaction to those kinds of encounters. Right. Than it is, uh, you know, oh, yeah. Abstract and, you know, uh, philosophical. It's just I've I've had so many students in my office saying, I'm just going to wait till I hear from God on this. And I'm, <laughs> I say, well, right. well I, I got my phone here. Let me call him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's where it's really helpful. I think Henry Nowen's thing is just it's like laying it before God and, uh, you know, and maybe God will give clear direction maybe he won't but like that also i think that kind of feeds into like the god who like smites us you know for doing the wrong thing like kind of like a simpsons god you know like yeah yeah uh i think that that kind of feeds into that mentality of like i don't want to screw this up because if i screw this up god is going to be really angry with me and i think that if we have a more loving gracious god in mind who takes delight and pleasure in guiding his children and blessing us and you know if you come to god with just hands you know hands open um, and that's, that's kind of how we pray at our church. It's that we pray, uh, we just say, come Holy Spirit, you know, put your hands out, come Holy Spirit. And if something happens, great. If nothing happens, that's great too. Like that's, you know, like just live in peace and stop living in fear of God smiting you for doing the wrong right. thing. And, and once again, you're so much nicer than I am. Cause my, my question is always with raised eyebrow. Say, do, you, do you really think you're going to throw God a head fake on this one? Right. You know, God, right. <laughs> God thought you were going to do this, but you're going to end up doing that. I mean, is that <laughs> right? You no. Know, do you really think you're that sneaky? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, once again, all right. Not now, now. It's time for confrontation. That's Ed. confession I, number do, three. Do, do you have the, your book in in your hand? I do. I do. All right. Open to page one fifty two. Okay. Go to the middle of the page. Okay. That doesn't mean I'm a perfect super Christian now, but I have never made so much progress in my Christian life until I learned to say to my sin, read that line for me. <laughs> Get out and never come back. <laughs> oh, come on, in a golem voice. <laughs> I, I have to ask, are, 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 are you doing a golem scene here in this chapter? And that was... I, that was definitely not my intention, but if you can, <laughs> if you can develop a, a spiritual allegory, like, have at it. All right, all right. <laughs> like I said, I read that and I thought, okay, you got to be kidding me. He's, he's going to try, try to throw that one on me. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, more serious, I, I mean, note, more serious yeah, note. yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the phrases that recurs in the second division of your book, and, and your book is broken up into sort of half of the book on ideas and then the second half on spiritual practices roughly speaking in the section on spiritual practices you talk about a phrase and it it happens over and over again to spend time with god Mm. now i want to get theological here for a second even though you're trying to get practical because i'm contrary in that way (laughs) since god is everywhere i have read the psalms and since any time spent is time spent somewhere what does that <laughs> phrase mean to spend time with God and how does it right. inform your chapters on spiritual practices? Yeah. This is one of those things, you know, it's probably like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make kind of the general confession and then I'll back up. <laughs> uh, probably more careless on my part. You know, I'm reacting against the whole, like your devotion time or, you know, kind of the Christian cliches and trying to find something that's very vanilla. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, like what's like something very neutral and vanilla that doesn't trigger like the the Christian culture uh, stuff that makes people feel really guilty. Uh, and and so what I was basically trying to say is talking about being aware of God and uh, being aware of God throughout the day, and then also that 
you know, that idea of intentionally stopping to be aware of God, to focus on God alone. So spending time with God would be, uh, you know, time that we, you know, spend, you know, maybe kind of like a Benedictine thing where it's, you know, God being present in our, our work, in our day. And, um, but then also learning to, you know, step aside and maybe do those, those spiritual practices, like, like the praying with your hands down and then up. And, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, so I, I think that it was just a careless wording thing because I was so paranoid about, uh, about avoiding Christian culture cliches that I kind of just quiet time. Yeah. Quiet time. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So uh-huh. I think I, I was so focused on what I wasn't saying that I didn't really think as clearly about, you know, maybe the, the theological, uh, particulars of what I did say. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, but I definitely well, wasn't. Well, tell our listeners a little bit because I did enjoy this section of the book, but I didn't want to do a, a whole question set on each chapter. Sure, sure. What are, what are some of the highlights of the spiritual practices? And in your experience, I mean, people who have been mindful of these things, how have mm. these things helped them to survive? I mean, to go back to the title of your book, how do these right. things help one to survive as a Christian? Yeah, I think the most important place to start is, uh, you know, thinking about spiritual practices as like, there's just a bunch of different things you can do. And so it's not like you have to do all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you find what works in a particular season. And, uh, and that season could be determined by just how you're interacting with God versus how, um, you know, uh, know, just what what you have time for. Uh, And so, you know, there's a season in my life where I was just like, Bible reading constantly, just Bible reading. And it was very like study oriented. And, you know, and then there was another season where it was like more just reading a lot of scripture. And then, you know, there's another season where I was taking lots of walks and another season where I was, uh, praying the hours. And now I'm kind of doing like a mishmash of praying the hours and doing an examine. And, you know, maybe the way I, I, I interact with scripture now is a little bit more meditatively that I'm meditating more on like shorter pieces of scripture, whereas in the past I would read a lot. And so, um, you know, there's just a, a lot of different practices you can do uh, to be to be mindful and aware of God. Uh, I don't want to maybe, maybe mindful sounds too Buddhist for some listeners. So uh, to be aware, uh, you know, for your quiet time. Uh, there you go. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so yeah, I think that's that's one of those things where, where like we just have so much anxiety about you know doing it right that um, you know, presenting people like here, like all these amazing disciplines and practices that have been cultivated for centuries and, and they're all here for you to use. And, you know, they're all different ways that people have found God. And, uh, you know, and I, I think that that's, that's an important thing to recognize that maybe, you know, if you've grown up in a church where the Bible was really used with a heavy hand, you know, maybe doing like, you know, using the divine hours and, and, and practices like Lectio Divina to, uh, slowly read through a small portion of scripture and let the words kind of sink in, maybe that'll be really liberating for you and, uh, help you appreciate the Bible in a new way. And that's not like the only way you'll read the Bible for the rest of your life, but it'll really help you through a season. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to return to one of the questions that I, I, I still can't decide if I like your approach or not. So I'm going to ask you to, I don't like it on it. <laughs> Uh, but well, one of the things I appreciate is that you you admit pretty clearly that there's no definitively good way to read the most violent narratives in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But I want to press you mm-hmm. on that anyway, because I, I've, I've read your writing about liberation theology before I teach it in Coffeehouse Theology whenever I teach my theology seminar. 
what differences do you see between, on the one hand, a theological preference for the poor in contemporary contexts, like you see in liberation theology, and then on the other hand, a theological preference for the band of liberated slaves over the established monarchies and fortified cities of Canaan in Joshua. It, it seems to me that those are cut from the same cloth, but you seem to think that there are some significant differences there. What are those differences, and why is it that the Joshua narratives trouble you in a way that liberation theology doesn't? Or am I just reading you entirely wrong? That's also possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think the important thing to say, like, first of all, is that um, I, don't, I don't feel like I have a, a, a great grasp of liberation theology. I, I've read some, I've read, yeah, I've read a, a decent amount, uh, and I read most of it back in seminary. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm very hesitant to, you know, I don't want to like speak on behalf of it, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, so I'm probably, um, you know, that's not, that's not, I'm, try, I'm not trying to be lazy or cop, you know, be a cop out there, but, um, I feel like I need to at least be fair that, you know, where I'm coming from. Um, you know, yeah, I, I you know, so when I approached that chapter, you know, the, the thing that I had in mind was that people use the word genocide uh, in reference to the book of Joshua, and they have something very, like, particular in mind, you know, that it's, you know, at least today, when we think of a genocide, it's usually like a, a superior force, uh, you know, wiping out an inferior force, that it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's rarely the other way around, uh, that the the weak, you know, people are, you know, so... Uh, that's that was kind of one of the things that I felt like we needed to to wrestle with a little bit. That you know, this is God taking the side, you know, of the poor, but at the same time, it, it's a very the outcome is very violent, you know, as well. That it's you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's killing, <laughs> it's killing the powerful. So it kind of takes things a step further, uh, and and you know, so I think that it it should, you know, it should be disruptive and uncomfortable, and I'm I'm not satisfied with. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to arrive at a better conclusion for that chapter. I didn't feel like I could, um, mm-hmm. especially in the space allotted. I mean, it was about 3,000, 3,500 words per chapter in that book. So, yeah. um, you know, so I, I think that that's the, the implication, um, you know, but maybe the, you know, I, if anything, I wanted to maybe give another point of entry into the story for people and mm-hmm. just to say, you know, well, what is, you know, what does the story say about, uh, powerful nations, you know, and uh, how we interact with the poor and, and the the people who uh, live, you know, basically, I mean, you know, we could argue that, um, you know, the, the Israelites are basically defenseless in many ways, that they were relying on God to uh, protect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what does that say to powerful nations like America today? Um, so I, I don't know. I, I feel like, uh, you know, if, if anything, I saw the dilemma of the book of Joshua with greater clarity, like the actual, like the real tension better, but I don't think I arrived at any, you know, any place where I felt like, oh, this is what, this is how you deal with that. <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, I, I can live with that. Cause I, I also, I mean, uh, again, it's one of those things where I, I want to maintain its authority as scripture. I have no idea how that works. So I right right. Uh, right. Well, Ed, I've I've been in the driver's seat most of this interview. So, in the interest of being hospitable, what do you want to tell our listeners about a Christian survival guide that we haven't been able to talk about so far? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that like the big thing for this book is uh, um, this this whole project started with just asking really uncomfortable questions for me, mm-hmm. and uh, and dealing with you know this big problems and questions my friends or people I've met have had, uh, and so uh, you know. I was afraid to ask these questions because I was kind of afraid that, you know, maybe God really is angrier, more vengeful and more, more violent than I suspected. Uh, maybe there aren't, you know, satisfactory answers to my questions, you know? So, you know, I kind of went into this, but there was a, a decent amount of trepidation and, and fear. And, you know, in, in each of these topics, I, I found that, you know, God, God was actually a lot more merciful and that there was a lot more mystery and there was more complexity um, and I felt like even if I didn't find the answer, like, like we just talked about the Joshua book, I felt like I could at least live with the tension a little bit better, had a better handle of things. And, uh, and so that's just kind of the encouragement from this project is that, uh, we don't have to always, uh, we don't have to run from our questions and doubts and fears about scripture that, uh, even in the mystery and complexity, there are, you can kind of, kind of take a step towards clarity. You can, uh, you know, you can still find a way to draw near to God in the midst of these confusing passages. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's kind of the general lesson of the book. I feel like if people who have, have had doubts and questions read it, I think that they'll they'll find at least a good place to start to ask more questions and, and take a step forward. All right. Well, listeners, the book is A Christian Survival Guide, A Lifeline to Faith and Growth. You can get it from Craigle Publications. Uh, Ed, I'll ask the question that I've learned to ask of people who are authors. Uh, do you want them to order it on Amazon or by some other means? Uh, any any means you want. Yeah, Amazon. Any means you want. All right, I can yeah. live with that. I can live yeah, with I, that. I, I, I put the uh, customer comes first. So wherever very you want to buy it, you good. buy it. <laughs> but it's a fine book. You should take a look at it. Uh, Ed Szeski, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. And listeners, thank you for listening. This is Christian Humanist Profiles. This is Nathan Gilmore. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern and editor is Zach Schmidt. Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.